Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Mind to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Please allow me to introduce you to our guest today, Darius Mirshaw Zazadeh, author of The Core Value Equation. Darius, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me, Mark. Excited to have you. I really enjoyed your book. I thought uh, you did a great job with that. And certainly you learned a lot of lessons yourself. So uh, before we start about the book, please tell the audience a little bit about your background and your own entrepreneurial experience. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Um, my father was an entrepreneur, actually. Uh, he moved here right after the Iran hostage uh, crisis in the late 70s, uh, our family did. And he, I grew up with a father who was, was very entrepreneurial and, uh, and I, I was very entrepreneurial, same with my brother. And so we got into the mortgage business um, when we were very young, teenagers actually, and um, just worked our way through that business. I, I'm still you know, relatively young considering uh, having been in the business for 20 years, but we built uh, our first business was called Twin Capital Mortgage. We built that from one person myself to about 150 employees in three years. It was number 40 in the Inc 500, just under $10 million of revenue. And we did that in our mid twenties. And so that was a really uh, integral learning experience. From that, I got involved in entrepreneurs organization, uh, which is a global community for entrepreneurs, uh, used to be called YEO. Um, and I got admitted into this program called Birthing a Giants, which is a entrepreneurial uh, executive education program out of MIT. And it's ran by Vern Harnish, who wrote the famous book, Scaling Up. I like his book. Yeah, it's a, yeah Vern's a, a great author and written a great book. Um, but that was my introduction into, you know, what I call entrepreneurial operating systems, mid-market systems specifically. And, um, and it was my first introduction to the core values and how do you use core values in a business. And I spent the next decade getting obsessed about it and use, using it as a tool for scale in my business and to create impact. Uh, so much so where I learned, I basically learned how to operationalize it to create value in the businesses I built. Um, now my business was a subprime mortgage lender, which was not a good place to be in 2007 and eight. Um, and we eventually shut that business down. And in 2013, I ended up, um, doing a deal with a company called The Money Source, which um, was a very small company at the time. The founder who, was my, who ended up being my business partner was in Long Island, New York. And uh, we built that company from about 30 employees to a thousand employees in three years. Um, it now manages about $75 billion worth of mortgages. It was a really interesting ride. And, but one of the things I got to learn was how do you apply these things I learned over that decade to create massive scale and to do it in a way that where we didn't have the same types of growing pains I had experienced in my previous businesses. So it, it was a good ride. And, and basically my book, The Core Value Equation was born out of that. Um, and that book premiered this September uh, worldwide. It's Amazon bestseller. I actually exited my company. So I'm now, uh, uh, I'm figuring out what's next, but the book uh, is what I've been working on and, and um, working with some very interesting CEOs, helping them scale their businesses as well at this time. 
Uh, why, why did you write this book? You know, it was funny. I, I've, I've, I've always been a CEO and always been the serial entrepreneur and always been aggressively growing my own businesses. Um, I am not a consultant. I've just now gotten into the world of, of, of coaching high growth entrepreneurs. But before that, I was always building my own businesses. And one, I had mentored a, a gentleman who out of San Francisco who had a small orthodontics pra practice through EO. They have a program called Accelerator. And uh, it's where small businesses are being mentored by larger CEOs. And so uh, we became friends. I helped him build his core values for his company. I'm, I say I'm a core value evangelist. So I, I believe core values are the, are the most valuable asset you have in your company to create a value and scale. Um, and so um, he asked me to speak at a conference in Dallas with a thousand orthodontics, orthodontists, excuse me. And, um, and I had this great talk and afterwards there was like a hundred people standing in line to talk to me. And the first six people asked me like, is there a book I can read or is there a class I can take to learn how to do this? And I just kept saying, no, I, I created all this. And by the seventh per person, I said, yeah, it's coming out in June. <laughs> <laughs> now you, you knew you had a market for it. So I, I want to jump into some of the book, and and I noticed that you have a picture of The Godfather, which is my favorite movie of all time, uh, Godfather 1, 2, and, and I even enjoyed 3. What's your definition of core value-driven organization? And uh, just to be fun here, what was The Godfather's core values? Um, well, so uh, I believe a core value organization is an organization where the team knows the values. It's the language of the organization. It's the way they talk to each other. It's the way they hold each other accountable. And it, it basically it's a centering. It's where people go to understand what is expected of them. And then they make those values come to life in the organization. So if you don't know your core values off the top of your head, if your team doesn't know the core values off the top of their head, and if you're not leave, living it and using it as a decision-making tool, organically through the organization, then you likely don't have a core value driven organization. Um, I think that, you know, honestly, I think that the number one core value for the Godfather was loyalty. You know, it's about putting the family first. Family is probably a big one for them. Um, if I had to guess, um, I might say excellence, you know, they have to, they had to do good work or else, you know, they took them out, yeah. <laughs> but, but loyalty, lo loyalty above all else. Uh, definitely. That's without question. If I, I believe that there's a hierarchy of values with it for both personally and for professional uh, organizations. And um, their number one without question was, was loyalty. Yeah. You learned a lot about core values watching that movie the 15, 20 times I've watched it. Uh, when, when did you realize developing and stating core values was important? You know, I had this moment when I was at, I, I, I often tell people, let me back up. I often tell people that I didn't find core values, core values found me. And, you know, I had this moment when I was at MIT where I was asked by, we did this peer-to-peer -peer workshop the night, the night before we graduated. And if you look at, you know, scaling up and you look at uh, traction EOS or OKRs, these systems around strategy and execution, all of them say you need to have core values. So we all go do it. We all go do that. We all go, go, you know, figure out what our core values are. We check that box. But what ends up happening is what happened to me at MIT is I, we had a peer to peer workshop and they asked everyone to stand up if our company had core values. Now, mind you, we're three years into the program. We've had time to build this stuff and everyone, so everyone stands up. So we all, we all quote unquote had core values. And then they said, well, please stay standing. If you can say your core values off the top of your head. And half of the room sat down and I was in that half, the first half of the room. Mm. 
And then they said, please stay standing if your employees know your core values. Well, half of the remaining half of the room sat down. And then they said, please stay standing if your customers know your core values. And everyone was sitting down except the two guys at the front of the, who were running the peer-to-peer -peer workshop. And that was a, a turning point for me because I realized that this, for some reason it resonated with me that you needed to have values. And the fact that all these great people who I respected didn't know their own values or their team didn't know their values, it just seemed like a disconnect. And I just, for some reason, I felt the inclination to start working on it. And the more I worked on it, the more I saw positive results in my business until it became essentially what I believe to be the most important foundation for growth in the business. It starts with the values. Then you work on strategy. Then you work on execution. And then you optimize to make sure the business gets better on, on all three of those fronts. Uh, how often do you see core values that are stated and communicated, but not really practiced or even support? And I think your company from based on your book went through that in the beginning itself. Well, there's data around this. Nine out of 10 companies do that. So 90% of companies have values that their team doesn't know. So that's the data. Um, I think it's nine out of 10, nine and a half out of 10. Most people, I think it is the most valuable asset you have in your business and the, the, it's the most, and I, I, don't, I say it's an asset. I say it's the most valuable asset you have in your business and it's the most underutilized asset you have in your business. How did you develop your company's core values and did people just think it was corporate BS uh, that you read in some business book? Uh, the first time around, yes. It, it, uh, it, in fact, one of the girls said it was BS when we rolled them out. So. Um, she forgot to mute her phone and <laughs> said, oh, this is such BS. And she didn't use the acronym. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so um, yeah, it is BS for most. If you don't know your values and your team doesn't know that know what the values are, then it is corporate BS. So for me, when I, when I sat down that day, the next day I went and I rewrote my values. And I don't even think that's necessarily the best way of doing it, but that's what I chose to do. And what I discovered and this is just you know, intuitively a lot of the stuff that I did was out of frustration. And then I would land on the right result intuitively. And then later I do the research and figure out that there was science and psychology baked around, around the things that worked. My book essentially, I tell people it's a design book because I believe that your values need to be designed for high utility value or else they won't get used. So I'll give you an example, Mark. Um, you have an iPhone or a smartphone, I, I take I it? I have a smartphone, of course, live off of it. Right, right. So do you know how many pictures per year people take on their smartphones right now? Oh, I'm guessing it's got to be like four or 500. Yeah, uh, uh, as a population, 1.1 trillion pictures per year get taken on a smartphone. In 2010, when smartphones first existed, do you know what the, what, how many people took on their phone then? Yeah, 100 million? Yeah, 86 billion. And, and, and if you go back pr before the smartphone, it's under a billion. Uh, the pictures were picked, not even on their phone, pictures taken in the world. So is it that we all suddenly became photographers? That we're, no, it's that the utility value of a tool that we happen to carry around with us all the time allowed for us to do that. And I believe that when you design values for high utility value, that's exactly what happens. You go from not using them, which is nine and a half out of 10 companies today, to everyone using them, like my companies, and they become the language of the organization. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book that you didn't follow your own core values. What happened? 
I just didn't, I, you know, I didn't know what they were. I, they, they were a box that I checked. I always say that, look, we're all taught the first things. If you look at business schools and you look at, you know, best practices in business, you're taught mission, vision, values. So we, we go and we, you know, if, if you don't know why you're supposed to do it, but you're, you just know that oh, it's important that I have a mission for my business so that we focus on this one thing that's important and values, you know, and we were taught as young children that you have to have good values. So the, the idea of values is not foreign, but how do you make them come to life in your business is a completely like un, unfixed concept. And so um, for me, I just did what everybody else did. I checked the box. I went, I built it. I didn't build them for high utility value. They weren't designed for use and they didn't work. And, and so we ended up breaking them because they weren't alive. And well, I mean, we, it's easy to break something that's not there, you know? It, it, and so for us, that's just what happened. Just like it happens in any organization. If you say you're something but you don't actually do the work, then are you really that? And my answer is absolutely not. Do organizations ever find that they need to evolve and change their core values as they grow and change? I believe that if they're designed well, they should rarely, if ever, change. So this comes goes back to, to design. And, and you know, I make an example of this in my book with Steve Jobs, and it's that good design withstands the test of time. We see this in real life all over the place. I'll use a good example of that. If you look at a Chevy truck and, and you can look at one that's 10 years old, five years old, 20 years old, they kind of look the same. You know, they don't change that often because it's good design. It, good, good design withstands the test of time. And we can you can look at skyscrapers that, that symbolize that. You can look at bridges. Good design withstands the test of time. So when you design your core values and they're authentic to the soul of the organization, Rarely, if ever, should they change. And there's a great book by uh, Jim Collins and Jerry Porras called Built to Last, which where they examine visionary companies throughout the 20th century. And it, this that's what they found was that they rarely, if ever, changed because they they stood for things that were non-negotiable. These were what I tell people is if a value is truly a value, you would be willing to lose money to make it be true in your business. So. Um, rarely do we hear in sports that a winning team doesn't have a good culture, but we always hear a losing team has a bad culture. Most everyone probably have seen the Michael Jordan documentary and it seemed in retrospect, they were glad to be part of championship teams, but at the time they hated it. Some even left to go to other teams because of the culture. Can you have a quality culture without great success and have a dysfunctional culture with great success? You know, I, I, I'm not going to say you can't have a championship team without a great culture. Um, it, it's kind of a loaded question, if you ask me, because what is what is a good culture even mean? Right. It could have, you could have a winning culture that is a hard culture to be a part of. So culture is a result. And I think a lot of times people act like culture is this like box. So it. it I, I don't believe that. I believe that what we're talking about here is good versus bad. And my answer is there's no, not, neither. That like, that's a label. You are what you are. It's optimizing for what you are. So my belief is, is that I can win with any culture as long as the people involved in it believe in it and support it and make it come to life. That might be a, a really hard place to be for some people and those people can leave. But for the right people, it might be the best place. So I, there's a quote I say in my book is that core values don't need to be nice. Yeah, talk about that. Well, we're talking about that right now. 
if you are a like warrior culture, let's use the bulls of the nineties, maybe that was a warrior culture. And if you did, if you were a more like harmony driven person, you're not, you may not be happy in a warrior culture. Does that mean that a warrior culture is bad? It is for the harmony driven person, but for the warrior driven person, it's where they want to be. I'll use another example. Let's use Uber. Uber under the leadership of Travis Kalanick, one could say had a toxic culture, but they also created a multi-billion dollar business. Now, at a certain point, it didn't scale well and he had to leave, but what they did is extraordinary. So is that a bad culture? I don't know. Depends on what you're, I would love to have that culture if, it got, if, it, if I didn't care about some of the things they didn't care about. Me personally, I wouldn't enjoy doing that because I think they did unethical things. Other people don't care about that stuff. So is that a bad culture? I don't think so. But what about the core values? Like, you know, even back, I mean, I go way back before you do, the Yankees under Reggie Jackson, Billy Martin had winning teams in the 70s, won World Series, but they were a really dysfunctional group that hated each other. And what was the core values that allowed them to win um, championships? And you've seen companies have great core values that just kind of putter along. You know, people feel good about it. And do you equate great core values with success or, or they're totally different? I don't have a label around values at all. So what if your core value is win at all costs, right? Yeah. Is that it? Is that a bad versus a good core value? It just depends on what your definite of what your personal definition of good and bad is. So I don't have a belief around that. If you're an organization and your core values win at all costs, then you're living up to that core value. Now, society may not like that, but if you don't care what society thinks, does that matter? It just depends on it just depends on what you want. I look, I don't, I would never run an organization like that, nor would I want to be a part of an organization like that. But should I judge another organization as a bad organization because they, they have a win at all, all cost ethos? I don't know. I mean, that, that, that's the point I try to make in the book is I would rather they be authentic to who they are, even if I don't agree with them, than do what most people do, which is get their marketing people involved, water down the values, throw some fake vanilla core values on the wall. And then the reality is they are a win at all costs and everyone hates each other. And it's not and it's not they're not being authentic to who they are. Uh, doesn't your belief system sounds like a religion? I mean, I'm not a religious person, so I I, I don't know. I, I I I don't have an answer for that. I, I what I would say is is that what is a religion really, right? Uh, so that's my question. Well, what do you mean by what do you mean by by the word religion? Is that there's a common group of values? So I mean, under that premise, aren't all religions the same then? Because they all most religions share the same values. They just kind of call them different things. Yeah, even their stories are the same. Right. So which religion are we talking about? I think all religions are the same. As someone applying to join a team, a company, besides looking at their website, are there questions you can ask them to learn about their culture more accurately? I think that if I'm applying to a, a company, the two things I'm going to do is I'm going to go and look to see, do they actually promote their values? Number two, I'm going to go look at employee reviews online to see what are people saying about them? I'm not going to believe just one employee, though. And then lastly, I'm going to interview the company for references on what they are. I'm not going to just hope that they, I show up and that they live up to these things that they say they are. I'm going to do the same work they're doing on me, and I'm going to make sure that they, they are what they say they are. So I think it's, 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 the, it's a reverse interview. 
when I interview employees, I'm going to make sure they're core value fit because I'm a core value driven CEO. And then I'm going to check their references because I don't necessarily know if they're telling me the truth or not. So I'm going to do as much homework as I can to read between the lines. I think employees should do the exact same thing. Uh, in the book, the teacher in a class you took asked if your employees and customers knew your core values. Why is it important your clients know? And I doubt anyone on this call knows Microsoft, Amazon, Harvard, the Patriots, practically any successful organization's core values. I think it's a gesture to put yourself out there. And when you do that, you are then to be held accountable to that standard. And I believe that I want my, I actually think it's a tool for growth. If I tell the world what I am and hold myself accountable to that, I will attract people that believe what I believe. And by the way, I look at, I look at uh, customers as, two to, as twofold. There's your internal customer and your external customer. My external customer is the person that pays money to buy my service. My internal customer is the person I pay money to, to create the service. <laughs> and at the end of the day, my external customer's experience is purely a mirror of my internal customer's behavior. And I can only control that, I believe, by making the core values become the language of the organization, because then I can create limitless scale around behavior. Uh, can't one ask for examples of how they demonstrate their values? Are, are we talking about like a, a, like a team or a person? Or like an organization. You know, you go apply to an organization or you're working with a specific organization. I mean, a lot of companies uh, even look at if they're going to partner with somebody or use them as a vendor, they actually study your core values and see if they line up with their own. I, I think it's exactly the same as I said before. When I interview an employee to come to my company, and let's use my last company, the money source. Number one, core value, people matter. Number two, core value, strength of character. Number three, core value, um, excuse me, uh, inspiring leadership. And number four, rock solid service. I'm going to say, show me an example of when you lived strength of character. And then we have a descriptive load. I read it to them and I go through each one. If I'm the employee, I'm going to do the exact same thing. Hey, can I talk to a few of your team members uh, at random? And I want to ask them, hey, what's your best example of the company living the value strength of character? Have they ever broken that value since you've worked here? Can you give me an example of one time maybe they disappointed you with one of the four core values? This is, a, it's a two-way street. Um, what do you mean uh, companies don't have core values, but people have them? Well, the reality is, is, yes, I know technically a company is a person under the eyes of the law. But the reality is, is when I put 100 people into a company, I have 100 different sets of personal values. And so they show up every day and they make decisions more or less based off those values. Hopefully they align with what the company wants. If the company is explicit about what their values are, specific about them and has made them come to life, I can demand for people to basically behave in a way that's aligned with those values, or I can ask them to leave the organization. What ends up happening when you don't do that is I get a mixed bag of core values. I get Tom, John, Sarah, Peter, they all have four different sets of values. They're going to make decisions based off of them if they don't know what the company wants. Uh, as I was reading your book, I was thinking that your high growth mortgage business was suffering from a lack of solid processes because you were growing so fast. And that probably a lot of people felt overworked and underappreciated along with hiring people who fit your financial model, but may not have been the best people in the high intensity, fast growth business. Where could your core values have made a difference if people believed in and lived them? Well, so what I didn't talk about in the book was 
was, and you're correct, we didn't have any processes. We were growing fast and we was a trial by fire and we were kind of, you know, building the airplane while we were in the air. Um, and we had tons of growing pains because there was a misalignment and then we didn't have those solid policies and procedures and systems that you're talking about. Now, I mind you, this is 17 years ago when we built that company and you had a lot, it was harder to, to build because it was more of an analog world we lived in and less technology available. But fast forward to 2013, when I built the business at the money source, I didn't have a lot of those same things then either, but I went from 30 to 313 employees in 18 months and I had an ENPS of 83%. Tell me how that works. The reason for it was that we had what's called invisible scale. And I believe that when you build core values for scale in your business, what like we define in the book, four things happen. Number one is you create the ultimate decision-making engine. People know what, what this, what's expected of them and they can actually test their decisions against the values. Number two, you create invisible scale. And what that is, is that's an alignment, a holistic alignment that happens. When I have 10 people that all have a similar set of values and they understand what the values are of the company. I don't need to create policy and procedure to get to make them behave the right way. They do it naturally. They don't think about it. Right. And so what ended up happening at TMS is we created our values. We scaled from 30 to 313 employees, 18 months, and we didn't have any growing pains, nothing. People just did the right things. And I noticed something. They're all speaking the same language. They're all holding each other accountable naturally. It happened holistically in the organization. The number three thing that happens is when you're explicit about it and you put it out to the world where you say, this is what we are. Don't show up here if you're not part of this and you make it part of your hiring process, onboarding process, day-to-day -day life in the business is through osmosis, people just don't show up. They don't show up unless they believe in it. And you end up attracting a lot of talent who believes what you believe. So again, they naturally just do the right things that the company believes in because the core values are aligned. And so I don't believe you necessarily need all, all these policies and procedures and systems to do it if you get the values right and make them come to life. I'm gonna add one more thing. You show me a hundred companies that have breaking, not doing well, low engagement scores who have all those policies and procedures. I could, that's, that's most companies that aren't successful. A lot of them have great policy and procedures, but they don't, but they don't have a great culture. They don't have a, a they don't have an, an alignment around their values. They have a lot of misalignment, which creates friction, which creates breakdowns, which creates problems. And then they're, they're not successful. Well, and, and, and uh, amazingly the Best Buy is still around based on your own experience, which I've had the same experience uh, that you did. And do you think they've gotten better at it? Tell them just uh, briefly what happened in your own experience with Best Buy and how frustrating you know, that I was. Had yeah, I had an experience with Best Buy where I called them up one day. This was like after I was building the money source and I, I, I needed the Geek Squad to come to my house to fix like a Bluetooth speaker I had. And essentially I called them up, sat on hold, got him on the phone. The person sounded like they were like the zombie call center employee. I got hung up on I had to go back through there, this miserable phone tree experience. Same thing happens again. I get hung up on, disconnected. And I think I'm three or four rounds deep till I finally get my problem. It takes like an hour to deal with this thing. And I'm super frustrated. And it was just this terrible experience. And I could just tell they didn't care about their job and they didn't have good systems. But, the, but more importantly than that, their, their systems were not baked in a desire to please the customer, Right. And so in the book, I use the example of, of Apple, which I have had an experience with them a couple of weeks later, where I call them up. The first thing they do is ask me for my phone number in, in the event that we get disconnected. The phone tree was easy to use. It got me into someone very quickly. And then they asked me, 
about the previous thing I had called about like a year ago to make sure it was still fixed, right? And so right off the bat, like my guard was down. I was like, wow, these guys really care. And I had a great experience with them. And I said, you know, Best Buy, there's a lot of companies and, and that, that, that do it the wrong way. And, and I believe that in the economy that we've been in over the last call it 20, 30 years, more of an analog, less digital, less commoditized economy, I think, I think you could have got away with it. If you're capitalized well enough and you have enough of the corporate infrastructure and you could build a business that has a mediocre environment to work in or mediocre care for the customer. Um, I believe that that will be gone 10 years from now because technology is much better. It's cheaper. It's more omnipresent price. When that happens, it drives price down price becomes more commoditized. So if price is commoditized and technology is commoditized, what's your differentiating value proposition people? Yeah, no question. In the virtual landscape, uh, how does your approach ensure new hires can acclimate? Any examples specifically uh, post-joining? Well, I mean, my, the company, what I didn't tell you is when we went from 30 to 313 employees, 275 of them were remote. Wow. I left that, yeah, I left that tidbit <laughs> out. Um, so yeah, it's, listen, it's harder to manage people remote. Um, it's harder to engage. You had to be, again, we, you just, you get the organization that you design and deserve. And, and so we got very intentional about designing our culture. We got very intentional about designing um, our tools around engagement. There's a lot of stuff that we did to make sure that the core values were nurtured. And I talk about that in chapter seven of the book. So look, I believe that technology speeds up whatever's already there in an analog world. Um, if you don't have human connection in an analog world because we're, you know, remote, then you have to figure out other ways to do it. And technology can help expedite that, but you don't get that physical touch. I don't get that water cooler talk. So I have to work around it and do as best as I can. I don't believe, by the way, that in this digital world where people are remote, that this is going to stick the way other people's the, the way other people think it's going to stick. I think that it's an important thing, and I've always been a fan of it in certain areas of the business. But I ended up going from massively remote to going back to an analog like in-person environment because I realized it, it was such an expense of having people disparate and remote. And so I believe the values, when they're, when they're designed for scale, they need to become the language of the organization. When it's, a language is a language. It, it, it doesn't, like, it's not like when you're speaking on Zoom, you speak a different language. You either are speaking the same language or you're not. And if the core values have become the language of the organization, you're just doing it over a different a, a different format. Um, how do you help folks who are just beginning to explore their core values, especially young folks or folks new to organizational life that they think they do, but haven't had the chance to see them actually grow? Are we talking about personal or professional? Uh, uh, I, I think uh, maybe both, maybe answer for both. Well, look, I think like core values is a thing that we can all do before you're even in a business. And so like I, like my family has, we, we built family core values. Probably my next book will be about how do you build your family core values. But um, that core values are something, I mean, I have a tool on my website. If you go to my website, you can get our core value finder and it'll, it'll basically, you can figure out your core values. I believe that core values are the language of our lives and, and they control our behavior. They give us a centering for knowing what we should and shouldn't do. When we break them, we feel the friction. When we're engaged them, we feel alive and we feel in a flow state and we feel comfortable. And so what I believe that you, uh, 
a company has an opportunity to create core values for the organization. And I believe the core values should to demonstrate the personality of the organization so that people know what's under, can understood what is expected of them. And when that happens at mass, you create massive alignment in the organization. Um, on an individual basis, I believe that the individual will wanna make sure their personal core values are not in conflict with the company's core values that they're a part of. If they are, they should probably find a new company to work for. Um, and vice versa, the company should, has an obligation to make sure that their team's core values are aligned with the companies. And if they don't, they should help them find a new place to go. That's a good answer. At what stage of growth and size of a tech company's value become critical factor for scaling up? I believe from day one. Because you said you're not changing it for, no matter how what the size of the company is. Yeah, I will say this is that like until you've been in business for three to five years, the personality of the organization may not be fully baked, right? A newborn baby doesn't has probably has not for, completely formed its personality until it's about three to five years old. And so there is probably, if you do it before you're, you're built, you, I mean, again, this is a new business. It's really going to be baked around the founder's values at that point. But as the organization grows, it's not just the founders. You have an executive team. The, te- the, the, the personality of the company will evolve over those five years. So if it's a, if it's a startup, what I tell them is you may have to go do a facelift in year three, four, five. And because and at that point, you'll really understand what the organization is about. The only other time I can say it is if, let's say, private equity is involved and then you bring in a new CEO and the CEO is not aligned with the values, which I think is a mistake, but let's just say they do it, then you may have to change the values because the company is going to be managed to a different set of behavior at that point. I I think that we learn our core values from our parents at a very young age and they kind of stick with us. I mean, when you see see, uh, kids go awry in school, you know, whatever that might be that they've done, I think that there's may have been a breakdown in the core values that we as parents place in them, which is a, a way to guide them going forward. And I think that also determines what kinds of organizations uh, that they get involved in. Like you said, there, there's not a good and bad core values. You know, there's uh, one people might have a set of core values that you and I don't agree with, but it works for them and the people who want to be a part of them. I and mean, we see that in the election now that each side has its own set of core values and it depends on what side you feel most comfortable with. Um, uh, could you, Darius, they're asking, please restate uh, your first recommendation. He gave other than interviewing the company and looking at employee interviews to look for and assessing a company's culture. I, I mean, if I'm an employee and I'm assessing culture, I'm gonna go read re- company reviews and I'm gonna, I'm gonna grill them on giving me examples of the company being how they live their core values, when they when have they broken them, when have they had challenges with them. Yeah, just whatever feels comfortable to like really get an understanding. And then I'm gonna ask if I could talk to the team and I'm gonna ask them the same questions. And, and I'm gonna ask them, what is, what's your best example of core value X, Y, and Z being alive and well in the organization? Give me an example of when they've broken it. How did they fix it? Because by the way, companies are always gonna break their values. That's just part of life. We're human beings. Human beings make mistakes. The question is going to be: Is do they? What do they do to fix it when they break them? It's like having a you know bad customer experience. Like I, I tell people, we're going to have bad customer experiences. Core values are not nirvana, but they do give us a a focal point to get back to center to fix the problems. And no question, I think that's for us for life, right? Your parents gave you a set of core values that actually made you uh, excellent entrepreneurs. You and your brother, right? He's an entrepreneur. As well, 
And that's helped you become a, a resilient person at the same time. I, I want to add something, though, what you said. I, I don't necessarily believe we get our full values from our parents. Some of it's nature and some of it's nurture. And so I believe that, and there's a whole idea around this, this theory called spiral dynamics, that our core values are an evolutionary process, personally speaking. And so how in touch you are with who you authentically are as a person will help you figure out what your values are. And a lot of that's dictated by friends, family, community, but you, there's examples of people that are always not fitting into those things and because their values are just different innately. And they, they got to go out there and, 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 and that's a hard place to be because your, your company may not be okay with, or you know, your family may not be okay with you being different. And, and sometimes you got to fight for what you are. And what I say is, is that's why I say core values. Are, no, there's no such thing as bad or good core values. You are what you are. Be authentic to them, whether people agree or disagree. As long as you know that you're being authentic to yourself, that's what matters. But I will agree that a lot of that is shaped by family, religion, community, and sometimes not. Sometimes we are what we are. We're just different. No, no question about it. We all see, you know, um, friends who turn out differently than when they started. And you looked at their parents and you think, oh, my God, they had great core values, everything else. But you're right. There's there's a lot into the mix. Um Someone's rights here. I imagine the majority of businesses do not actually abide by their core values. Businesses get in the way. Business gets in the way. Is that what you find as well? I think majority of businesses don't really have core values that are alive and well in their organization and that they're just running their business from fire to fire. Um, and so, yes, I agree with that statement. I But I believe the real opportunity is to be Number one, discover what your values are. Number two, design them for high utility value. Number three, roll them out so the team learns what they are. Number four, implement them on an ongoing basis so that they are used for decision-making. And number five, measure for efficacy on an ongoing basis and optimize. When you do that, then you will not break your values or when you do, you will fix it. And I believe that is when you really get enormous growth in your business because you attract the right team, you attract the right customers and you repel the wrong customers and you repel the wrong team. And then you start to get a flywheel of growth and it gets faster and faster and faster. And there's less breaking of the values because they're such an important part of the business. Yeah. I, I, but I, I do see where he comes from because if you took a look at what happened with Wells Fargo, where they were making up these false accounts because people were so driven to make the money and reach their goals. And, and we see this happen all the time. Goldman Sachs, doesn't matter who it is. They believe they have a set of core values that are really strong, positive, and so forth. But then when it comes time to meeting your quarterly numbers, then people can get, you know, they're making a hard choice here. Well, I, I would claim that that's a, that's a break in their incentive system and that you, you get what you incentivize for. So, if you want people to live the values, you need to create an incentive system that aligns to the values. Again, this is a, like this is where if I have an incentive, if I have a system for decision making, and everything is baked out of that, including every incentive system. The question should be asked: Is are does this incentive system align with our values? If the answer is no. It shouldn't be your incentive system. It's easy, but if it if you if you're designing an incentive system that's fully out of alignment with your values, I can tell you what the end result will be. People are going to break the values. Simple. So you get what you incentivize for. And I'm firmly all about incentivizing for living the core values. And you could create monetary values that align with your, your business values. You know, you have to, or monetary systems that align with your values. That is a decision. It's a strategic decision. 
So if you have someone breaking that, they shouldn't be there. You should get rid of them. Um, this conversation resonates very strongly with introspective individuals. What about the many folks who don't think about this at all? They come to work to do a good and fair job, but they don't really think much beyond that. How do you acclimate them into the organization? Well, going back to what I said before, you design the values so they're authentic to the personality of the organization. The book talks about that. Then you you discover, so you discover for authenticity, design for high utility. Number three is the most important part. By the way, go back to what I said earlier in the talk. Uh, when I recruit people, I put them through a pretty heavy core value recruitment process. I then onboard them. The first eight hours are in my company. All they're doing is learning. We do a full day on our core values. So I'm, I'm teaching them the language of the organization. I'm immersing them in the language. So think about this. If you show up at a company, the, the, let's say you interview through an eight-hour interview process and all like a majority of it is based around values fit. Then your first day on the job, I spent eight hours working on teaching you the values. Then you go into the job and we talk about our core values in our huddles. We talk about them in our weekly one-on-ones. We talk about them in all of our technology systems. In my companies, we had a employee recognition systems where we would give each other kudos for doing stuff. You'd always pick a value and give kudos. So if you're doing all these things, once every other week, we'd ask the question, who lived one of our core values in the organization that you work with? How do they live it? What's their name? And who? And when did they do it? And then we'd share those stories with everybody. If you're in an organization that does all that, you tell me if they're going to be behaving around the core values or not. If they're Whether they're introspective or not, it's designed for use at that point. They know what's expected of them. And they're either going to get with the program or they're going to not fit. fit. Is there certain, let's say you're going to develop these core values. Are there a few building blocks you should start with that are executable? Yeah, the book covers it. You have to make it very simple or else people won't do it. So the time process to create high utility value core values is a time intensive process. Think of the iPhone. It, they put a lot of time and effort into the design of that product so that we are now a world of photographers, right? That didn't happen accidentally. That happened for, through a ton of intention and time. So you have to, the heavy lifting is around the design. And what I would say is you need to design them for heavy use. They need to be authentic to the soul of the organization. The book in chapters four and five talk about that at detail. Then you need to roll them out. And in chapter six, we talk about how do you roll, how do I immerse the team in the new language of the values? And then ongoing is where people usually fall off. You know, they have, I call the rollout process, the core value wedding, and then they're in a core value marriage and they don't talk to their spouse ever again. And I say, well, there's a thing called a divorce in real life. If you give a wedding, you don't talk to your spouse. So it's no different in a company. If you, if you have that core value wedding, that immersive rollout, and then they go to work and it's business as usual and there's no, the core values aren't being used. Well, they're going to say this is BS. So I believe you have to make that very simple. Chapter seven of the book, we we get we, we create some very easy, simple things that you can do. It's a, and there's a word in Japanese I love. It's called shibui. That means there's complexity and simplicity. So the book is really about designing for simplicity, but it, for heavy efficacy. And if you do that, they'll be alive and well in the organization. Anyone can do it. But you got to make it easy, or else they won't. Um, so two more quick questions here. One is, uh, what problems does an independent contractor-based organizations have in driving core values? I think it's the same thing. You still, you should still, you should still be treating the people you're going to be working with. I go so far as to, as I'll, I'm going to take it a back a step. I interview my vendors based on their values as, as an organization, literally my vendor, 
So it's the same, it's the same deal. The, the contractor either aligns store core values or not. You shouldn't hire them if they don't. That's it's an easy it do you have a process around vetting vendors? Do you have a process around vetting uh your your contractors? And if the answer is no, then you get what you're gonna get. Who knows? Um I'm forgetting the guy's name, but um the founder CEO of Bridgewater. And the question is, how do you think Dario of Bridgewater's preach business core values? I don't know their values, um, but but I believe that the best companies make best use of this. And so I just I would need to I would need to know what they were, and I would need to see examples. And 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 I and chapter eight in the book is all around measuring for for ROI. Are they doing ENPS? Are they doing Q12? Are they measuring for engagement in their team? Highly engaged team with high high level, um, high utility values means the values are alive and well. In my company, we measure the core values on a monthly and quarterly basis. Are you actually, I mean, you, Peter Drucker said it best. If you can't measure it, you can't improve it. So my belief is, is I don't just take it for like, oh, I think we're doing a good job. We got a good culture. Forget that. I measure it like it's the profit and loss statement. Excellent, excellent. One last question here. In the book, you talked about getting the team involved in developing core values. What's your experience with that? Is it should it just come from the CEO? You talk about this in the book. Yeah, I don't believe it should just be the CEO. I, uh, Vern Harner said he and I talked about this specifically. He said you can be rich or you can be king, and at the end of the day, the, the organization has a personality. And if it perfectly aligns to what the CEO is, then great, that's that's fine. But I believe it should be people that are gonna be there for the long haul, that truly, truly understand the personality of the organization, and they're not gonna negotiate just to please other people on the values. You gotta pick who those people are. Very last question here is, how do you make it sticky? This is the last question, how do you make it sticky? Yeah, chapter seven, literally chapter seven of the book is how do you make them sticky and viral? Right. Uh, it goes back, to, it, it, it's like anything. It has to be designed for high utility value. If it's not designed to go sticky, it won't go sticky. So it's got, so we have a system in the book. The team has to be designed to be remembered. It has to be designed in the tone of the, of the language of the organization. It needs to be memorable. We use Miller's law, so it can't be more than nine words. Um, and you have to essentially use it, create a tool for high utility value. So the book outlines that. Discover for authenticity, design for high utility value, roll out for immersion, um, and then ongoing stickiness is around nurturing those values in an easy way that, and, and we talk about that in the book and there's a bunch of recommendations. So I'd like everybody, one of the things I have to say, Darius, is that people ask a lot of questions. So uh, this topic is a very hot topic for people. I hope people will come out and I guess they can't see my book, but they see it behind you, uh, behind your shoulder. And I hope people will get this book. And I hope that when you write your next book, we'll have you back again. And I appreciate everybody coming out and I appreciate everyone's questions. And I want to thank you. And uh, we look forward to following you. And yeah. you did a great job. Thank you so much. I appreciate being on your show. And yeah, please support the book. It's 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 a number one bestseller on Amazon. And if you love the book, please write, write a review. Have a great rest of your day and a great weekend. All right. Thank you, Mark. You as well. And I appreciate uh, everyone. If, if anyone wants to connect with me, it's, you can, they can connect with me at Darius at TheRealDarius.com. Wonderful. I make sure everybody gets your email. Perfect. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate your time. Take care. Have a good weekend. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. 
Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.